On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. You would sit there feeling, I have more to say about this. I want to talk more about this game I'm watching. You know, I'm a firm believer that as long as you're, as you're good enough, um, you should get the opportunities regardless of gender. And I've always felt as if I have had opportunities regardless of gender. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast, and here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, and this is the very first episode of the Autumn Series for 2017. And I'm really excited to kick things off with an interview with one of my favourite cricket broadcasters and a really lovely person who was so generous with her time. I'm speaking, of course, of Alison Mitchell. Alison moved through the ranks of the BBC to become only the second woman on the BBC and the first woman in Australia to commentate on a men's international cricket match. She's an award-winning broadcaster and now works for BBC Test Match Special, BT Sport Cricket, ABC Grandstand and is the host of the BBC Stumped podcast. In this interview, we talk about her journey to commentating, what it is like in the ABC and BBC commentary boxes. We also find out what it was like making her commentary debut alongside Jeff Boycott and Ian Chappell, who her three favourite commentators are, and how the first ever Cricket World Cup started over a nip of brandy. Now, listeners, before we get into the interview, I just want to thank all the Patreon subscribers for their ongoing support of the show and announce some more good news that the Have A Go Your Mug mugs are now for sale. So if you're interested in buying a Have A Go Your Mug mug, you can email me at auscricketpod, that's A-U-S, cricketpod at gmail.com. Also, if you've got some time and you haven't already done so, please leave a review for the show on iTunes and tell your cricket-loving friends about the Australian Cricket Podcast. All right, listeners, now sit back now with a hot cup of cocoa and enjoy this interview with the very lovely Alison Mitchell. Hi, Alison. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. Thank you, Manners. Good to be with you. I'm really happy that I get a chance to interview the first woman to commentate on a men's international match in this country and the second woman to ever commentate regularly on a test match at the BBC. Now, tell me, Alison, what do those achievements mean to you? Well, it's been a, quite a long journey, I guess. Test match special was really important to sort of make the breakthrough and actually be able to sort of make a career out of uh, commentary on that programme because I followed in the footsteps of Donna Simmons, who's the West Indian uh, lawyer, uh, who made a few appearances as a guest in around about 1999 on the World Cup in England, and Peter Baxter, who was the Test Match Special Producer at the time, uh, had come across Donna in the West Indies and invited her to be a part of the programme. So she commentated for a handful of matches, but she was, a, a, as I said, a lawyer by profession. So since Donna, there really hadn't, there hadn't been anybody before and there hadn't been a woman since. I then made my appearance commentating on international cricket for the first time on Test Match Special in 2007 at the inaugural World 2020. 
So it felt then as if there'd been such a gap and there hadn't been anybody who'd been a, a, a journalist commentator who had been set to make that their career. So to be able to come in and, and actually commentate, but actually then to stay and be part of the programme and become part of the fabric, yes, has been hugely important to me to, to, to say that that has be, become and been and still is and will be uh, my career. And, and now to have other... Uh, commentators coming through behind me as well, whether that's in, in county cricket uh, and as summarisers in international cricket and, and on television, the likes of Mel Jones and Lisa Stalaker, uh, in England, Isha Gua and Ebony Rainford-Brent uh, really making waves, and in India, Anjum Chopra as well, part of that IPL uh, commentary team. And, and to now be on the ABC as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a real thrill because I spent so much time in Australia growing up. My mum is from Adelaide. So I would spend every turn at Christmas uh, in the Aussie summer over here. So we would have ABC Grandstand on you know, on the radio and in the car and, and we'd have Channel 9 on the TV. And, and I sort of felt I grew up with Richie Benno uh, in Australia as much as you know, I, I grew up listening to, to cricket in England. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's been a real thrill to be involved in, in Grandstand this summer for sure. When you were moving up the ranks, did you think it was possible for a woman to break into the commentating for a test match? Did you think there would be some resistance? I don't think I ever felt there would be sort of resistance as such, but it did certainly take a long time. Like you had to really earn your stripes, if you like, and, um, and earn, well, just sort of wait, wait your turn almost because it was about seven years between me doing my first um, international commentaries. And I did my first county commentaries in 2006, having done a lot of reporting and, um, and I think really getting my name known and becoming known and trusted by the audience, which is a really key part of, of, of any broadcasting. The audience has got to, to trust you. Um, and so I had to build that up first and then started doing the, the England commentaries. And I've been touring with England since 2005 as a reporter anyway. Um, but yeah, from 2007, I mean, there were various things which happened in between where I probably, I, I should have done more commentary and then I was in line for a test series and then I had to miss a tour because I was ill and, and things like that happened. But then it was seven years until 2014 when I eventually um, you know, got my opportunity to commentate on my first test match for TMS. So the, the, it never felt as if there was sort of resistance in terms of, you know, an old school mentality. And I was incredibly well supported and backed in in what were my own ambitions from the start by Adam Mountford, who is the Test Match Special uh, producer now. And he's the one who really listened, took me seriously and absolutely believed me and had no problem at all with me saying, I really want to commentate. Because all the time I was sitting at county matches, I'd be doing, you know, an update on scores once every hour. And I just would sit there feeling, I have more to say about this. I want to talk more about this game I'm watching. And so commentary for me was just the natural thing to do, the natural progression. Uh, and, I, and, yeah, very, very grateful to Adam. And you think of all the people that have sort of backed you and believed in you and just thought, yeah, you want to do it? Go for it. We can, we can help to make this happen. You know, I'm a firm believer that as long as you're, as you're good enough, um, you should get the opportunities regardless of gender. And I've always felt as if I have had opportunities regardless of gender. And so it was just a matter of, of getting in the commentary box and then doing it. It's not to say that I didn't feel a lot of pressure when I was doing those first matches. And even seven years on doing my first test match, it felt all over again as if I'd probably be under quite a bit of scrutiny and people will be you know, paying extra attention and listening. And, and there might still be those somewhere who'll be waiting to see if you slip up. And if you do, then they will 
you know, come to the conclusion that all women are terrible commentators. You really did feel as if you were sort of commentating on behalf of, of womankind, almost. <laughs> That's that some pressure. sound too dramatic. <laughs> yeah, but it's the, same with, uh, it's the same with women's cricket, if you think about it. I think that this is why the, the WBBL is so great, because there is so much women's cricket um, available for people to watch, whether it's on the live streaming or on TV. But there very definitely has been a sense over the years of people tuning in to watch women's cricket for the first time. And if they happen to watch a poor game, or they happen to watch a game where there are some terrible runouts, or you know, then they'll draw the conclusion that oh, all women's cricket is rubbish and they switch off. And, you know, it's not the case at all. And you watch men's games, of course you do, where there's some terrible runouts and there's a, it's a terrible quality game. And, and people, you know, certainly don't think, oh, all men's cricket is rubbish. They just say, oh, that's a, that's a terrible game of cricket. And they wait for the next match. And that's, I think, where the WBBL is, is really helping. And, and the fact that there is so much more cricket to watch now, people know that, that, it, that it is a good product because they're able to see so much of it. But certainly, yeah, in commentating, when I first was on Test Match Special, it was at a time where there had been a lot of negative publicity about some changes that had been made to TMS, um, just with, with other commentators, male commentators, who had been sort of put aside and some new, newer names come in and the programme had been revamped a little bit with, with um, a new producer. And so to then have me come in as a, as a woman, I think, I think even the BBC had steeled itself uh, for almost perhaps a bit of a backlash because at the same time, there had recently been uh, Jackie Oatley, who's a very good friend of mine, commentating on match of the day on football or soccer, as you know it, for the first time. She was the first woman to do that. And there was a huge backlash from the football community uh, in England. And there was a lot of people who supported her. But at the same time, she was front page news in some of the papers and there were radio national phone-ins about females being allowed to commentate on football and was it right and there were some really extreme opinions so that was the backdrop into which I was then doing my first cricket commentaries on test match well, special. That's a lot of pressure. So I, yeah and that sort of backlash though never happened uh, for me. I, I did just get on the air and I commentated and it, and it went off really without a great deal of notice being taken and I do think that a lot of that is to do with me having spent those years in the county game and that whole thing I said about trust so by the time I actually stepped up behind the mic to do England matches the audience were totally used to my voice because they'd been listening to me doing county cricket for so long and listening to me reporting on England tours for so long so it wasn't like I was a new name and a new voice and a bolt out of the blue it was just the next step to what I've been doing in the years previously. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this summer in Australia, there's been a noticeable shift in the cricket broadcasting landscape. And I think on the back of the WBBL success last year, there are a lot more female cricket broadcasters regularly commentating on cricket uh, right throughout the summer, there's been a real sh- change. We've had, obviously, yourself on ABC Grandstand. We've had Mel Jones, Lisa Stalaker, just to name a few. But, you know, there's been Narrowly Meadows, lots of female cricket broadcasters really ingratiated into the landscape. And I think this summer, it's a real change. It's amazing. Yeah, and I, I think this is building on what I saw. I remember in 2009 being here for the Women's World Cup and being at North Sydney Oval and watching... Um, you know, watching the matches there through to the final and looking at the, that clutch of players and thinking to myself, this will be the generation of players who, when they retire, will have opportunities to move into the media, partly because of the profile that the game you know, was starting to get then that has simply built you know, over the last six years or so. Uh, and also it's the fact 
that, that there was sort of me working in the media. Mel Jones still even then, you know, I think that was one of the first times where I worked with Mel Jones because she was doing, um, you know, Women's World Cup commentaries sort of ad hoc alongside, you know, what was her main job then before she went full-time into the media. Um, she was working as a, as a sports agent. So there was those of us in the media who were already, if you like, sort of making ground and making ourselves established. If you like, normalising the environment, normalising women talking about cricket, whether it's women's or men's cricket. Well, get, getting people and used then, to it as well. Yeah, and yeah I, I think absolutely. watching the WBBL last summer, I think it helped the Australian public sort of get used to women playing and talking about cricket and seeing it all the time on TV. I think it's become yeah. part of the fabric now. Yeah, I think normalising is a really important word for the, for the whole thing, whether it's women playing cricket or women talking about cricket. It is just much more normal now, and, and that's afforded by you know the opportunities that kids have as well to play cricket at a young age, and they can see the pathways you know from playing sort of Milo cricket, Kanga cricket, that sort of thing, you know, through until clubs. Um, in Australia, and then they can see the pathways now into the state systems, into a WBBL team, and to actually be paid to play cricket. The whole the whole industry is is, is much more le- legitimized and normalized. So it, I think it, it's only going to go from strength to strength. Now, Alison, I want to make a small confession that when you made your debut on Australian radio, I was a little bit yeah. dismayed that we'd given the first cap to an English woman and not an Australian woman. But now you're telling ah. me you have a very strong <laughs> Australian connection that your mother is oh, well, I do. Australian. So that tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. So well, I guess I well, I'm very definitely half half Australian, Phew. Uh, half English. So I can call myself. Uh, well, I was always called a posy growing up, a pommy Aussie. Excellent. So that was from my my mum, who is uh, Australian, was born in Adelaide. Uh, she travelled across to England in the early seventies and met my dad over there and then stayed. Uh, and so Australia was always the place that we travelled back to the set every other Christmas and we'd come over and spend three or four weeks you know, staying with the family in Adelaide and, uh, and and doing all the things that Australian kids do. So cricket on the beach, cricket on the telly, cricket in the backyard by the light of my aunt's car headlights. We'd try to repl- replicate uh, day, night and World Series cricket until the car batteries ran out and then we went too popular with my aunt. So that was my, yeah, that was my upbringing. Well, that's that's um, great the, that there's a real Australian connection for a hi- historical moment in Australian cricket. I'm the opposite. I'm married to an English woman and we live here. And I always tell my kids, actually I used to tell them until the last ashes, that if they were really good at cricket, they could play for Australia. And if they were okay, they could go and play for England. But after <laughs> the last ashes series, I stopped using that line. Are you reversing that? <laughs> yeah, it didn't seem appropriate well, you know anymore. My dad and my uncle still actually, this is my Australian uncle and, and my dad in England, still have a, a bit of cross-global family banter by awarding, in inverted commas, each other a replica Ashes urn, depending on which country wins the series. So as things stand, there is a, a miniature Ashes urn uh, residing on my dad's mantelpiece uh, in England after England won the, the, the last series in 2015. And he'll have to bring it over to Australia with him for when the Australian series happens over here in case he needs to hand it back over to my uncle at the end of the next series in Australia. If not, he'll take it back on the aeroplane with him, which is far better than the real Ashes Urn, which is hardly ever allowed to travel. This one's been backwards and forwards over over the globe numerous times. But, yeah, we just have a little bit of family banter with the the awarding of the Ashes. I would suggest your Ashes Urn is more durable. 
than the one that's a little bit in England at the yeah. moment. <laughs> uh, now you spent the summer in the ABC grandstand box commentating on the Test series against Pakistan. What's it like in the grandstand box as compared to the BBC box? Well, in many ways, it's it's very similar. I think the two programs follow quite a similar pattern of broadcasting, if you like. Um, three commentators, three expert summarisers. Uh, the commentators do 20-minute stints around the clock. The summarisers do half-hour stints in and around that. Um, so the actual pattern of, of commentating um, is, is very, yeah, very much the same. So for me, it felt very natural sort of flipping into into that environment and, and doing that. The, the personnel, you know, I've known for a, a long time, most of them. Um, Jared Waitley worked with you know, numerous times before. Dirk Nannis, actually, I did a lot of my early county commentaries alongside Dirk Nannis when he was playing cricket uh, in, in England. And Chris Rogers, all the time he spent playing county cricket as well. Um, Simon Katic, I hadn't, so I'd, I'd met him last year when I commentated on the, the day night, uh, the first day night test in, in Adelaide. That was the first time I joined the team for test match commentary. Um, and they're just, yeah, really, really great bunch of guys to work with. Um, you know, they've got a good mix of, of knowledge and humour, the, the sort of lightness of touch that you need to keep a test match day bubbling along, uh, yet also, you know, the, 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 the gravitas of their opinions. Uh, to be able to, you know, put forward some some strong ideas, you know, when needed or, you know, when you ask them some probing sort of questions, they're not afraid to come forward and, and say what they think. So I think it's been a really, yeah, it's, it's a really, really good team. And the uh, like the press room they do at lunchtime as well gives you a chance to actually let the, the day breathe and, and get into some you know, meaty cricket topics. So it's got a strong journalistic edge as well, which as you know, the journalist in me feels is is all important, that it is still a programme that will hold those in power to account as well. And the way that James Sutherland um, you know, appears once every test match um, to be interviewed by Jared Waitley on the outfield before play is a, a hugely sort of important part of the relationship that the programme has with Cricket Australia and being able to you know, put the questions to, to the governing body that that the, the supporters might want the answers to. So it's got a strong journalistic edge. And then also, you know, just having that, yeah, the, the, the ebb and flow of the day. And it was brilliant having Jim back in the commentary box in Sydney after his stroke. So, uh, you know, sort of personal thrill for me. That's the first test match where I've commentated alongside Jim. I'd worked alongside him uh, in one day. And of course, in England, but to kind of be on his home patch in, in Sydney and welcome him back into the box for that test match was really special. Do you have a favourite ground in Australia? Oh, my favourite ground has to be the Adelaide Oval. And even with the revamp, I think even more so perhaps with the revamp, I do love you know, the way that they've modernised it, yet still kept a lot of the, the character. You know, From the members, you can still see the fig trees. You've still got the, the heritage scoreboard. You've still got a hill. Menas, all praise hill. to the hill. <laughs> Um, and it, yeah, it's just become a spectacular world-class venue. Um, so I think uh, uh, all the England supporters who are going to come over for the Ashes will be quite amazed because in the last Ashes series, it was still only half built. Uh, with a lot of scaffolding around and, and only half of the, the stadium was, was accessible at that point. So I think that, yeah, the English fans and the media are going to really be wowed uh, when they come over next November. Yeah, I think the Adelaide Oval really is an amazing ground. I think the SCG and the Adelaide Oval are two grounds that have been able to retain some character while modernising. Uh, sort of yeah, the SCG with the pavilion and the ladies' pavilion, absolutely. Yeah, it's just got that really uh, great atmosphere, whereas some of the other grounds, I feel they're a bit homogenous. If um, it doesn't, they're just a, a circle with a lot of seats, and 
they don't have a character, whereas it's the Adelaide Oval, as you say, it sort of breathes, and that hill um, certainly gets the crowd going. It was pretty raucous when I was there for the day-night test. They certainly like a beer on in Adelaide. <laughs> it's like a nightclub out the back <laughs> during the evening of the day-night test. Yeah, it's a party atmosphere. Now, let's go back to the BBC box and ask, what are some of the big influences you had when you were coming into commentary uh, who you sort of looked up to? Well, and the main one you know, always was Jonathan Agnew. He, for me, is the, the, the doyen of, of radio cricket commentary. Um, he, he, as the BBC correspondent, he, of course, you know, has, has that gravitas about him. His, I think his, his delivery, his tone, his pace, Again, the ability to switch between description and then stories and then gentle humor. Uh, and, and your relationship with summarizers is, is really important in the, in the radio commentary box. And, and to, to emit warmth, for me, is, is one of the most important qualities that a commentator can have. And yes, you, it goes without saying you need to be describing the, the action with accuracy, but to be able to do that with warmth is a, is a huge thing because radio is such a, an intimate medium. And people are you know, inviting you through their radios into maybe their living room, into their car, into their bedroom on some occasions. Uh, and, and yeah, warmth is a huge part of it. And Agus, for me, has, has the whole package. Um, you know, and, I, and I still commentate and think, but I'm still sort of aspiring to try and get that natural rhythm bot on between description and then conversation and then description and then back to the conversation again and then description and then carrying on the conversation you know between deliveries and at the end of the over and it's it's a real skill it does sort of take years to 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 hone and get absolutely right and I, you know, I think you're always improving as well I mean, one of the one of my commentator colleagues did say to me once you know the reason why we'll never get bored of commentary is that you're always searching for the perfect game. Like you'll never really quite do the perfect game because every game is, is, is different. And you always come away thinking, oh, there's probably that little bit I could have done a bit better. And so you, you'll, never, you know, get, you'll never get bored of being a commentator because there's always something that you can improve on. Um, but yeah, Aggers, I, I love listening to. And he, he has a tremendous rapport with Jeffrey Boycott, who, who's also been quite a, a, an influence on me. Uh, he was on my first ever England tour in 2005 to Pakistan. which was the first time I, I met him. And he also was alongside me when I did my first England commentary uh, in 2007. In fact, um, yeah, it was myself and Agus as part of that team for England-Australia in the, the World T20 in South Africa. And so my commentators alongside were Jeffrey Boycott and then Ian Chappell. Wow, they seem like two you know, very traditional characters. Yes, exactly. You would you you would think, and so if you're ever going to be daunted by you know the two the people you're working with to make your your sort of England commentary debut, that that would be it. However, Jeffrey, you know, I had worked with for two years at that point, and and in fact on that tour of Pakistan, he he showed himself to be you know really quite sort of the generous character. There are a few of us on that, who were on their first tours uh, on that trip. And we actually took to calling him Uncle Jeffrey at that point, um, partly yeah, out, out of affection because, you know, he, he, we discovered that you could tease him. He takes teasing pretty well. I think he actually quite enjoys being teased by the youngsters. He's probably used um, to it. He also, yeah, yeah. But he also had this generous side where um, I remember there was a couple of us who, whose stomach, you know, played up a little bit on that trip. And he always used to come to the ground uh, bringing sandwiches from the hotel because he'd had throat cancer. Uh, he wasn't able to deal with uh, with spicy food. So rather than eat at the ground, uh, the local food, he would always have sandwiches made up 
by the hotel, which he would then bring in. And just a little thing, like he, he brought in extra boxes of sandwiches for me and my colleague because he knew that we weren't quite feeling right that day. So totally unprompted, he turned up at the ground having asked for sandwiches for us as well. And little things like that, we just sort of thought, ah, oh, you know, lots of people would just not even think that he had that, that, that sort of streak in him. Um, you know, his public persona over the years, you're right, very traditionalist, very grumpy, very self-centered in the way, you know, with his batting. But no, he's, and he's been a great supporter of mine in my career as well, um, sort of pushing me and, and encouraging me and, and putting in good words for me, you know, here and there to, to help create opportunities. And so he's been a huge backer and, and I enjoy being on air with him and he is still grumpy. He does still sit down and say, morning, love. Hello, darling. And that does still get a few people going on the Twitter who think that's him being you know, incredibly sexist. But it, 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 it is just him being, being his Yorkshire old-fashioned self. If I thought for a moment that he was actually being sort of sexist or trying to be derogative in, in saying that, then I would, uh, I'd have a problem with it. But, but he's absolutely not. So it is, it is just his way. And I yeah, do enjoy working with him. He's a brilliant analyst, the way he's able to talk about the game and, and, and see in the game, you know, he always brings something new to it. And, you know, he's, whatever you think about him, he's just, he's a fantastic thinker of cricket. Yes, he is. He is. He, he has incisive uh, insights and he, he cuts to the quick and he doesn't mince his words. And I think as many a, an England batsman who's been on the end of a tongue lashing from, from Jeffrey after they've played a, a rash shot. So I think that's that's why he, he, he and Aggers together do have this great rapport. Because Aggers is a brilliant foil for Jeffrey's sort of brusqueness and his occasional, you know, moodiness and his, his grumpiness. But yeah, above all, he he just calls things as he sees it and he makes no apology uh, for that. It can sometimes come across as some pretty harsh judgments, but there's nothing better than just an analyst who is being honest and and calling calling things as he sees it with fair judgment, which I think Jeffrey always does. Now, when I was doing research for this interview, I came across a story about you getting stuck in a toilet during a test match. Is that just a, a Wikipedia rumour, or is there something to that story? <laughs> yeah, I don't believe everything you read on Wikipedia, but on, on that occasion, yes, I did get stuck <laughs> in the toilet in the bowels of the Chennai Stadium, I'll excuse the pun, but this was during a test match in it was 2008 on tour of India. And it was, it was actually we'd just returned to India after the Mumbai terrorist attack. That's a whole other story about how that unfolded and how we ended up uh, going back again. Uh, but, yeah, that particular test match, because of the terrorist attack that had taken place in Mumbai, the ground was full of security personnel. There was something like, I don't know, 500 sharpshooters, bomb squad, anti-sabotage units. And there was uh, this police force called uh, India's Rapid Action Force, who were the big sort of uh, anti-sabotage counter-terrorism unit for the country. And, um, and yeah, I think when they were patrolling the ground, the last thing they probably expected to be called to do was to rescue a hapless journalist <laughs> who was locked inside a toilet. And if you've ever been to a ground in, in, uh, in India, Menace, the toilets are not always the most salubrious. That ground has actually been um, upgraded since then because of the 2011 World Cup. But in 2008, the toilets were pretty average. Pretty grim. Did they have to, like, break the door down to get you out? Yeah, basically kicked the door down with their steel toe-cap boots because somehow the door clinked shut and there was a mortise lock in the door, which I just heard go clunk. And then I went, oh, and I I went to open the door or there was just no handle, absolutely no handle on my side of the door, just nothing. So I literally could not 
pull the door open. There was nothing to try and you know unlock it. So I was left sort of, I stood up on the system to try and look over the top of the toilet. And because, again, then there was so few women in the, in the cricket media, I think I was the only person using that block of toilet. And so I was very, very lucky that actually there were a few female police, police officers. They came to use the toilet. So after about 20 minutes of me being locked in there, which, you know, when you're in a toilet, feels like an absolute eternity. And, uh, yeah, and I was able to raise the alarm and they went off and got their male colleagues. And then, gosh, there was just this scene where there was about, 20 police officers and all sorts of personnel standing outside the toilet sort of watching me look over the top of the toilet towards them and then they're trying to figure out how we how they could get me out and could I climb over or could I climb under and no in the end they just had to kick the door down. <laughs> I bet the commentators in the BBC box must remind you of that story regularly. Yeah, Agger's got a fair bit of mileage out of it because I missed the tea break, you see. I'd nipped down at the start of the interval thinking, yeah, I'll quickly go to the tea break and go, go down during the tea break and nip back up. And because I was in there for more than 20 minutes, play had started again. And the producer had looked around thinking, oh, he's not normally late back into the commentary box. But then kind of thought, oh, yeah, maybe she's just, you know, gone for a walk around the ground. She'll be back in a minute. <laughs> Unbeknown to them, downstairs, three floors below them, all sorts of mayhem was kicking off in the ladies' loose. <laughs> Well, there we go. What a story. So it's not a Wikipedia rumour. It actually happened. <laughs> it actually happened on that occasion. Now, in the sadder news, English cricket lost a real doyen of women's cricket last week. Rachel Hayhoe Flint um, mm. passed away. She had a huge influence in the formation of women's cricket and actual cricket World Cups as a whole. Are you able to tell the listeners a little bit about her and what she was able to achieve for women's cricket? Yeah, she was a wonderful lady. I was so saddened when I heard the news. She'd been ill over Christmas, which I hadn't been uh, aware of at the time. Uh, She was 77 years old. She was England cricket captain in the late 60s uh, through into the the early 70s. She was, or she never lost a test match as England captain. Uh, And her her life spanned so many things beyond cricket, though, uh, as well. Uh, She was involved in Wolverhampton Wanderers football football club she was made a peer in the house of lords in her in her uh, latter years uh, she was involved in numerous charity and community work but on the cricket front when she was a player she just had an incredible drive and ambition she she resented the fact that women played international cricket but had zero profile that she took it upon herself as england captain to generate profile for the women's game she would write, she would play a match, Captain England, then write match reports about it and take them to the Telegraph. She'd take them to the national papers, getting coverage for England women's team when nobody was interested in it. She would rattle buckets uh, around the grounds to raise penny and raise money uh, for England for their kits, for travel expenses, because, of course, they weren't paid anything. They absolutely paid to play. They bought their own kits. Uh, and she was at the forefront of of just simply trying to put England women's cricket on the map. She she had a real cheeky, mischievous sense of humour as well. She had a great deal of, of gall, and she would say how she would ring up the producer of there's an iconic uh, sports quiz on TV in the UK called A Question of Sport. She would ring up the BBC producer of A Question of Sport and say, well, you know, you haven't had a, a, anyone from women's cricket on your show, you realise. And they would be put on the spot and say, oh, well, 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 yes, we'll, we'll, we'll try and get someone on. You know, we might not find much archive footage of them, though. And so Julie, Rachel Hayhoe Flint would appear on a question of sport. So she, she was a household name. And, and for many years, in fact, uh, until, I guess, modern day England women's cricket 
sort of in the last, um, you know, eight, ten years when Charlotte Edwards, you know, was the first name to trip off the tongue. And now, you know, happily there are many, many more. But for years, if you said to people, women's cricket, they would simply say, oh, Rachel Hayhoe Flint. And she really was a household name. You mentioned the World Cup menace because without Rachel Hayhoe Flint, there certainly wouldn't have been a Women's Cricket World Cup for as many years as there has been because she began the Women's World Cup before there was even a Men's World Cup. And this, again, was all due to her own her own drive and her her own ability to make things happen because she grew up in Wolverhampton, as I mentioned, and she was aware of a philanthropist called Jack Hayward who lived in Barbados uh, but was from Wolverhampton. Uh, he had a bit of a penchant for, as she put it to me once, eccentric projects. And she thought, I'm going to write to him and ask if he wants to sponsor my England cricket team. So she wrote to him around about 1970 and just simply said, would you mind sponsoring the England team? We've got a couple of tours to the West Indies coming up. And she kind of thought she'd never hear back from him. But then three weeks later, she got a phone call from the man himself saying, I've got your letter in front of me. I'm, in, I'm, I'm over in um, the West Indies. And yes, I'll sponsor your cricket team. And that began not only a partnership, but a, a lifelong friendship as well. Uh, Jack Hayward passed away in 2015. But he then began sponsoring women's cricket and sponsored it for about seven years. But round about, I don't know, it was probably a couple of years after that, after their initial uh, sort of correspondence in 1970, that Rachel uh, was, was with him, drinking in his home, uh, in a family home that he had in Sussex with some of his relatives, after a match that that she had played for England, and they cracked open a bottle of brandy one evening. And this story she told me when I met up with her a few years ago in the House of Lords, because her diary was so busy, which is, this is the only way I could manage to meet her, um, by actually going to work with her effectively at the House of Lords. And she told me the story, said, yeah, the bottle of brandy came out, and uh, after a few sips, so Jack just said, I've got an idea. We should do a World Cup of women's cricket. Have another drink. And Rachel had said, oh, that's, that's all very well, but someone would have to pay for it. It's a great idea, but who's going to pay for it? And he said, well, I'll pay for it. And she said, that's all very well, but you're going to have to get official approval. He said, no problem. And he went off and spoke to the, the secretary of the Women's Cricket Association, as it was then, because the ICC only took over the running of women's cricket in 2005. And they duly, the two of them, Rachel Hayhoe Flint, together with Jack Hayward, got together teams from around the world to play in a Women's World Cup in 1973 in England. The final was at Edgbaston. Princess Anne attended the final. And that was the first time anything of its kind had happened. The trophy they played for was the Jack Hayward Trophy. She told me how Jack took her off to the Silver Vaults in London to choose a a trophy, and they picked this lovely silver chalice. Uh, And that was the trophy that was played for, again, up until 2005, when uh, the ICC took over the running of the game. And now they have a, a sort of generic... ICC Women's World Cup trophy that they compete for but if it wasn't for Rachel Hayhoe Flint that uh, original World Cup it would never have happened yeah and it sounds like the women beat the men to hosting a cricket World Cup which is amazing they absolutely did and and the the thing now that I mean, when I heard news of Rachel's passing I immediately said oh the you know this year's Women's World Cup needs to be dedicated to Rachel Hayhoe Flint, she started it all. It's, it's being hosted in England again this summer, um, so it would only feel fitting. But more than that, I would really like to see the the Women's World Cup now named after Rachel Hayhoe Flint. Again, she started the whole thing, and that story should never be forgotten. You know, future winners of the ICC World Cup in 
25, 50 years' time should receive a trophy with her name on it, which causes them to pause and think, who was Rachel Hayhoe Flint? Oh, yes, I know the story. And for that story to be retold and retold and, and, and handed down. The original Jack Hayward trophy sits in the museum at Lord's. And in fact, when I uh, sat with Rachel a few years ago in the House of Lords, and she was telling me that story of how she and Sir Jack cooked up the first World Cup, she did say to me then that she'd really like to see the Jack Hayward trophy start to be awarded again in World Cup cricket. Not as the main trophy, because she knew, you know, the ICC have a trophy now. But she said, wouldn't it be nice if that trophy could be awarded for, say, you know, a, a magic moment of the World Cup, a bit like, uh, you know, a, a sort of champagne moment. Yeah. It could be a, an amazing innings. It could be a quirky moment. It could be a spirit of cricket moment. But she said, so Jack had a great sense of humour, you know, much like Rachel. And she said he would really like that. So I, I have actually passed that on to the, the ICC uh, to say, oh, this is something that, you know, I have on record of Rachel saying to me in an interview a few years ago. Um, is this worth, you know, thinking about? Can you think about this? Um, but Sounds then like also, a I'm sure. Cause. Yeah, and I'm sure they are thinking of ways that they can honour Rachel at the the Women's World Cup in England this year. But I I just think such a, a fitting thing and a lasting tribute would be if the World Cup could be named after her. Yeah, sounds very appropriate. Now, Alison, I know you've got to go, so I've got a couple of quick questions before I let you uh, get on yep. with your day. Firstly, we always have a commentary critique on the Australian Cricket Podcast, and I thought I could ask <laughs> you for some tips. Firstly, who are your three favourite commentators to listen to? Oh, well, I've already mentioned Jonathan Agnew in so radio. One. So, yeah, I have to give you that one. I'm going to so on the uh, Big Bash, I do love listening to Adam Gilchrist. I just think he is someone who has that warmth that I'm talking about. Um, he, yeah, I, I think he sort of has the that, that thing that's hard to put your finger on as to just why you like him, why you just like listening to what he's got to say. And he's he, a yeah, very he's professional broadcaster. Like he, yeah. he actually is able to like drive discussions and he's aware of the, the dynamics of things. And, you know, he's, he really is a broadcaster now, like really good at it. Yeah. I feel he's learnt the, the craft and the art of, of broadcasting. Like he's come at it from that sort of, um, quite sort of academic angle. angle, but but that that yeah yeah, but at that angle of right, this is a this is a whole new profession now. I'm no longer a cricketer. This is actually a profession in its own right. And I've got to learn the craft of it. So I really like that. Um, and and of course and of course I love Jimmy Maxwell on the ABC as well. And you know the, the stories he's got, the wealth of knowledge that he's got as well. And again, that delivery and and, and the pace and the ability to sort of switch on the radio and sometimes without even listening to the words you, you you instantly get a feel as to what state the match is in or what's happening at that moment because of the either the the pace or the energy or or the the lack of pace in in the voice and the delivery just the, the tone can tell you so much in radio and yeah and jim and and, and Agus, both of them just have that craft down to an absolute tea jim maxwell doesn't mince words now he's become I would say, more opinionated than he used to be. He really had some good forthright opinions on Australian cricket, which he's happy to put forward. And I think Australian cricket needs that sort of senior voice uh, in the media. You know, we've had a a few move on, pass away, and there's a few gaps there. And I think, you know, Jim Maxwell is really important to the landscape of Australian broadcasting at the moment. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And the last question I want to ask you, and, and... uh, you know, we've got a big Ashes summer coming up next year in Australia. What are your early thoughts on that series and who will start favourites? Is it going to be the English with another famous victory down under or could it be another 5-0 thrashing for the Aussies? Ooh, 
Australia, I'm really excited on their part to see if they can get that fast bowling trio or, or quartet, you know, whether it's sort of Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins, you know, those three together, you know, really will be a handful for England. England first have got to work out who's going to be their captain before they come over. Alistair Cook still hasn't made a statement either way as to, you know, whether he's continuing or, or stepping down. I would like to see him carry on and, and lead England uh, back here before handing over to, to, to Joe Root. I think it's possibly, uh, is it too early? I mean, I guess if you're, if you're good enough, you're, you're well, old Swift's enough. 27. How old's Root? Yeah, Root's not quite there yet, but um, you know, Alistair Cook. I, you know, he, he's obviously still got, you know, a good couple of years left in him as a batsman. Uh, I suppose it's just how long, you know, he he can shoulder the the responsibility, and whether it's a burden of captaining. And in England, traditionally, captains haven't lasted too much longer in the side after they've stepped down. So maybe if we want those couple of of years you know, left in him as a batsman, maybe he should carry on as captain. But that that will probably unfold in the in the next few weeks. Gosh, I don't know. Australia at home with the home support is so hard to, to win. Uh, and England had, well, they had Alistair Cook on, on absolutely red-hot form when they won here in 2010-11. They had Peterson in the side. They had Graham Swan, world-class spinner. Uh, I think on the, the spin front, England haven't really quite nailed things down. But they do have a very, very strong all-rounder in Ben Stokes which is sort of a position Australia haven't managed to, to nail down yet. And he he really is a Flintoff-esque type of cricketer. You know, with bat, he can bludgeon it. I was in Cape Town watching him score um, you know, fastest 250 in test cricket. Um, I have seen when he's taken the ball in hand and he's just burst through and can, and can change a game. He's, he's dynamic in the field. So there's a, there's a few areas where England, you know, have a bit of a win if you look at sort of head-to-head battles. But... Oh, I don't know, Menas. I'm, I'm hopeless at calling things okay. this far out. You don't have um, to predict. I just want it to be a really, I just want it to be a really competitive, enthralling series, and I, I think the crowd will get into it hugely. Stuart Broad is going to relish coming back here as well. He has a sort of very, you know, brilliant love-hate relationship. Where it's probably more love now, particularly after his performances and his appearances in the, in the Big Bash. But yeah, he kind of relishes the the intensity of an Ashes battle. So yeah, bring it on. Yeah, well, both teams have a lot of exciting players, a mixture of youth and experience. So. It should be a great series to watch. Uh, hopefully, we'll see some fireworks on and off the field. Um, well, Alison, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the Australian Cricket Podcast. I said in the introduction, you're one of my favourite cricket broadcasters, so it's really good that we're able to have a chat on the podcast. No, I've, I've enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I enjoy listening to the pod, so yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, have a great English summer. Good luck with all your broadcasting over there, and hopefully we can catch up when you're in Australia next year during the Ashes. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks so much, Manners. Go well. Thank you. Well, everyone, thanks again for downloading and listening to the Australian Cricket Podcast. The next guest for the Autumn Series is going to be Mark Howard from the Big Bash. Stay tuned. What a marvellous strike. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series.